he was greatly distressed to see that his city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Before we get into uh, the sermon this morning, as you know, um, if you've been uh, paying attention to, to slides and to the, uh, to the announcement sheet and these kinds of things, and if you've gone on vacation and have actually been able to, to utilize it, we do a live stream every uh, Sunday morning and every Sunday night, and then some of our special events get live streamed as well. And the reason we do that is we, we have some, some folks that uh, are, are just part of the core of, of our church family, and even though they're the core and would wish with, with all of their strength and with every fiber of their being to be here with us, there are circumstances, sometimes it's health, that, that keeps them from doing so. And the, the importance of the live stream is to help those folk uh, feel connected to us and for us to know that even though they're not with us this morning, they're, they're watching from their home, uh, sometimes from, uh, from their bed, uh, sometimes they're in a hospital, and again, sometimes uh, uh, these, these folks are on a vacation and, or they're on a trip or they're, they're carried away for some other kind of business, and that's why they're utilizing it. But we, you know, there are folks like Doug and Lona Brown and Lee and Willing Ferris and Shirley Minton and Cheryl Romai and Latrice Cross and Ada Coward, and uh, there are others, and they're all in the bulletin. There, m- many of them are watching us right now. Even though we can't see them, they're a part of our assembly from where they are. And we want them to know that we're thinking about them as well. And so what we want to do, and we're going to turn up the ambient mic so that they can hear this over their computer speakers, is we want to sing to these folk who can't be with us this morning or for uh, uh, a lot of mornings. We want to sing to them, we love you with the love of the Lord. We love you with the love of the Lord. We love you with the love of the Lord. We see in you the glory of our King, and we love you with the love of the Lord. And all the church said, Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the ways that you take care of us, the ways that you bless us, the ways that you make us aware of your presence, the way that you let us know that regardless of where we might find ourselves or what's going on in this life, we are not alone. And that is a source of joy. 
that just as, as, as fathers look after children, you look after us in such a way, Father, that you bring a peace in a world that is often not very peaceful. You bring a joy into our hearts in the midst of a life that sometimes is not very happy. And you bring a love to us, Father, that at times defies just the indifference and the disdain that people can have for one another in this world. We are grateful for these blessings. And Father, we pray that we not only know them in our head, but that we know them in our heart in such a way that we are changed in order to love you and to love people and to change this world. And it's to this end that we study this morning, Father, and sing and pray and gather around our Lord's Supper time in this assembly, our fellowship time, our, our interaction with each other. It's all, Father, so that we might be a salt and light in this world. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, Father, as we study this text. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin uh, with a question this morning. And the question goes like this. What is the relationship between the Christian faith and the secular culture around us? What is the relationship between the Christian faith, our faith, your faith, my faith? What is the relationship between the Christian faith and the secular culture around us? Not, not too long ago, I mean not in recent history, but not too long ago, I ran into a guy who's very well known in this, in this area of, of South Texas, uh, a guy that professes to be a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, and uh, we ran into each other kind of abruptly. We weren't expecting to run into each other, and we uh, exchanged all of the, the usual pleasantries, how's the family, how's the children, how the kiddos, how's life going, and these kinds of things. And he, both of us were kind of in a hurry at the time, and, and right before he abruptly left, we ran into each other abruptly, and abruptly the conversation ended. He goes, he goes, preacher, he goes, we are in a culture war in the United States right now, and as soon as Christians wake up to that fact that we are in a fight, the better. And then he just turned and he was gone. And, and I'm thinking about what he said, and I thought to myself, I'm not sure I ever realized that sharing the gospel with somebody involved a punch in the teeth as well. Or that when you're loving your neighbor as yourself, it also includes a kick to the shin. There's a really interesting story in, Matthew, in, in Mark chapter 5. At the end of Mark chapter 4, there's this gigantic storm out on the Sea of Galilee. The, the disciples and Jesus are in a boat. They get to see him still the, the, the storm. They end up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee as chapter 5 opens up. They're actually in the Decapolis. And they, they land on the beach, and they're all wobbly-kneed and seasick and all of this from this horrendous storm. Plus, all of the adrenaline is beginning to drop. They're in awe. Uh, mentally, they have seen this great manifestation of Christ's power as he stilled the sea and controlled nature. And then they look down the beach, and here comes a human being running towards them. But this is no typical citizen of the Decapolis. This guy that comes running at them is a guy that is... is um, uh, struggling at every level of his existence. 
He comes running down the beach, and this is a guy that is demon-possessed. He has been afflicted, again, at every level, from, from conscience to emotional life to physical to spiritual. This guy has been afflicted, and he's afflicted by demons. And he comes running down, and he lands right in front of Jesus on his knees. Now, this guy, again is a nightmare to all of the people that have been living in that vicinity for years and years and years. They knew about this guy. They're scared of him. They, they try to subdue him with the strongest of chains, only for him to break them. They cannot subdue him. The children are up at night afraid because they can hear him screaming in the cemetery. This citizen comes running and falls down before Jesus, and he is a nightmare to everyone except the Christ. And one of the things that happens in this story is they have an exchange there's a dialogue but jesus in the end casts all of those demons and the demons call themselves legion because there are so many of them and he casts them into about two thousand head of swine who rush headlong down into the sea of galilee and they drown uh, a couple of us were at this place uh, in the middle of the summer Still kind of a dangerous place for human beings to be because of undiscovered landmines from recent wars. But that's what happens is that the, the, the demons enter these swine, they go down into the Sea of Galilee, and they drown. And all of the ones that owned those, those pigs see that, and they're cut right in the pocketbook. But it's not that only. It is a frightful thing to see this guy tamed the way that Jesus has tamed him and brought wholesomeness and health back to every area of his being. And when they, they, they see all of this, they beg Jesus to split. The guy that had been demon-possessed, who's now in his right mind, maybe for the first time in a lot of years, who has been healed at every level of his being he wants to get in the boat and to go with jesus wherever jesus goes and he has been so thoroughly healed and blessed and brought to wholesomeness that he does not want to let jesus out of his sight that's how you know when a conversion is pretty profound and he, he begs Jesus, let me go with you. I, 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 don't, I don't ever want to leave your side. Let me go with you. And Jesus says, no, it's not for you to go with me. I want you to go back to your village. I want you to go back to the villages around you. And I want you to tell all the people that you can how God was compassionate to you. How God had mercy on you and changed your life. And so he does. You don't go too far past the Gospels into the book of Acts. And in chapter 6, you're introduced to this guy by the name of Stephen. And Stephen is a very, very humble man. He is a devout human being, loves God. He is a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. He is a disciple of Jesus. And he is also one of the first deacons in the church. Well, because of his life and because of, of just the quality of his life, he is, his life is not one that goes unnoticed by those that are against the church and against the gospel. And so they grab him one day, and after he makes a defense and talks about his own faith, they take him outside the Lion Gate. It's called Stephen's Gate today. It's, just, it's the outer wall just north of, of the temple platform. And they take him out there, and they stone him to death. And as he's dying, he asks God, 
In fact, he asked the same thing that Jesus asked as they were putting the nails in Jesus and putting him on that cross. Do not hold this sin against them. That's the end of chapter 7. Chapter 8 begins with this great persecution that breaks out against the church. And, and people are beginning to scatter out of Jerusalem, and they're going all over Judea and Samaria. And we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, that those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. Those who had been scattered by all of the persecution, the fact that that culture inside of Jerusalem had declared war against the church, they went everywhere preaching the word. Now, in the next four verses after that, there's a little bit of a description of what that looked like. Here's Philip, who is also one of those deacons, like Stephen, who had been chosen because of who he was spiritually. Here is, here, here is Philip, who has gone into, packed his bags, and has gone up north. He's gone into Judea and Samaria, in that area, that region, north of Jerusalem, and he is beginning to do the exact same kind of thing. He is sharing his faith. He is talking about the Messiah. He is talking about the Christ. But at the same time, Luke tells us that, you know what Philip is doing in all of those towns? He's taking care of people. He's, he's, he's casting out demons and helping people to come into their right mind and into their own person. At the same time, he's, 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 he's talking about the Christ and people that are lame and people that are paralyzed are being healed. And in verse 8 of Acts chapter 8, you read these words. So there was great joy in that city in a place and at a time where war had been declared against the church, the disciples of Jesus go into those towns and into those villages and they talk about the Christ and they do the work of Christ in such a way that there is great joy in those cities. In Acts chapter 17, Paul comes to, to Athens and he helps us to see again the answer to that question, what is the relationship between our faith, our Christian faith, our, our walking in the steps of Jesus and secular culture? There are three things I want to underline this morning before we go. The first one is the gospel goes where you go. The gospel goes where you go. When we begin to understand that, that the, the, the gospel is not something that, it, it's not a piece of, of information out there that you can take it or leave it in the sense of whether or not you embrace it and it changes your life. It goes with you wherever you go. Wherever you go as a disciple of Jesus, you take the gospel. You never leave it at home. You never put it on a, a, you know, on a, in a file and put it in a private domain someplace. It goes where you go, which means that the circumstances do not matter when it comes to outreach or sharing your faith or being evangelistic. Think about what happens by the time you get Paul in Acts chapter 17. Thessalonica had not been a very good experience for Paul and Silas. There's this, this riot. There are accusations that are flying. Paul and Silas have to get out of Thessalonica. They head to Berea. The experience in Berea at first begins to be a little bit better, and the, the Bereans are a little bit more noble than the Thessalonians. But those people that were anti-Paul and the gospel up in Thessalonica, they make their way to Berea, and Paul has to leave Berea as well. This is how he gets down to Athens, and in Athens he's left by himself. Now in Paul's world, Athens was like New York City or like Paris or like London or Mexico City. It was a city that everyone in the world had, had heard of. Now Rome 
was the power capital of the entire world. Nobody disputed that. They were the emperor and the ruler of the known world. But Athens was the cultural capital of the world. And that's what made it such a tremendous influence. What happened in Athens culturally and philosophically, religiously, all of these things, that was of interest to everyone in the world. Well, as you can imagine, there are synagogues in Athens, and Paul finds it, and he goes and he reasons with the Jews. But he also goes to the Agora, the marketplace. And what's interesting about that marketplace is there's really nothing like it in our own world. There's nothing like it. Getting close, sort of, to the experience of going to the Agora might be going not to just, you know, your vanilla variety, garden variety, uh, H-E-B, but the H-E-B plus. You know, you go to the H-E-B plus, and you can buy food. You can, you can buy uh, a robe, a television. You can, you can buy um, a chimnea. And you can buy 50 pounds of, of deer corn. You have all of these things that are happening at the HEB Plus in a very, very small way. That's what's happening in the Agora. The business, the food, the religion, the news, the art displays, the academic debate, the philosophical, uh, philosophical discussions. That's what's happening in this marketplace. And that's why everyone went there. It was to connect to everything that's going on inside of the world. Now, Paul had been to a lot of cities in his day. But again, none like Athens. And when he is relating the story, because remember, he's in Athens by himself. When he's relating the story back to Luke, he talks about the fact that when he first got to Athens, he discovered that this was a city that looked like a forest of idols. That everywhere you turned, there was some kind of an idol. It was a forest of, of idols. In fact, one of the prepositions at the beginning of this word that says forest of idols is this word that kind of refers to this luxuriant growth. They're just idols all over the place. It is a fruitful place for everything under the sun. A Roman satirist in, in talking about this, this phenomenon in, in Athens said, you know, it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is a man. And Paul is discovering that. And so Paul does the unthinkable thing going into a place that is as pluralistic of a society as any, as you will find in the history of the world, he does something unthinkable. He goes public with his faith. Now that's the, the, the same kind of a, of a no-no, a cultural taboo that we find even in our own world. In our world, you can keep your faith and you can believe whatever you believe as long as you keep it to yourself. And you keep it in a private domain. But Paul finds himself in this place that is so captivated with idols that he can do nothing but share his faith publicly. And so he begins reasoning with the people in the marketplace day by day. He engages the culture rather than walling off his faith. Now, this, mor <laughs> this, this morning, in, uh, in our, our, as you know, all of the, the staff get together about 8 o'clock in the morning. We have prayer and we have a discussion. And one of the questions I asked was, should I share this, uh, this sermon illustration? And uh, as it turns out, on uh, Thursday night, I finished up the sermon. First, first point is, the gospel goes wherever you go. 
Little did I know that on Friday I would have a chance to experience that firsthand. Uh, for Valentine's Day, even though it's this Tuesday, Ellen and I were both off on Friday, she decided, you know, you work hard, you're tired, I'll get you a massage. So I go, and uh, I'm, I'm laying there and getting really re relaxed, and all of a sudden I hear the question, what do you do for a living? Not the first time I've been asked that. I said, well, uh, I'm, I'm a minister for a church here in San Antonio. And for about the next 15 minutes, had this really great conversation about, uh, about God, about creation, about evolution, about all of these things. And who would have thought that that would have happened in a place like that? Wherever you go, the gospel goes with you. Wherever you find yourself, the gospel goes with you. And at the same time, and these two points are kind of connected with each other, remember that not only does the gospel go where you go, but the faith is not void of emotions. In fact, the faith is full of emotions. Look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. What does it mean for Paul to be greatly distressed? The, the word there is actually the word that we have in English. It means this, this sudden seizure. It's a, this violent expression of, of, emo, of emotion. Paroxysm. It means, it means this, this, this spasm of emotion or seizure of emotion. Now, here's the thing about that word, though. It, it tells us the depth of the emotion that Paul has right there, but it does not tell us about the nature of that emotion. I'm, I'm in, really indebted to John R. W. Stott in his commentary on Acts. He writes that the word, when you find it especially in the Old Testament, is translated as jealousy. That God is described as a jealous God whose, whose experience of that jealousy is profound and deep. In Exodus chapter 34, do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Now that sort of gives people fits because of the negative imagery and the negative connotation of jealousy and what it has in our world. But here's the thing about jealousy. There is a sinful aspect to it and there is a right expression of it. The, the sinful side of it would be something like this. A girl sees Dorothy with the red, ruby red slippers and she says, I'm really jealous of those. Technically, she could not be jealous unless she thought the shoes belonged to her and Dorothy had stolen them. In that case, she would envy them. But the right expression would be something more like this. A husband, walking down the street, looks into a restaurant window and sees his wife in the arms of another man, and he becomes jealous, and rightfully so, because his wife does not belong in the arms of another, but belongs in his arms. Now, this is why the word jealous is used of God when it comes to humans and their idols. It's because God becomes indignant because human beings belong in his arms. 
And this is what, what Paul is beginning to discern as he's walking through the marketplace and he sees all of these idols. He begins to experience what it is that God experiences when he sees people in the arms of the idols that are destructive and are destroying them. He goes into the city, but, you know, it says he sees the idols, but it's more than just seeing the idols. I mean, he sees the idols, and he sees it in such a way that it begins to have an effect on him. The word that says see, that we translate as sees the idols, is not just the word that says, okay, uh, you know, I see it like I'm looking at an eye chart. It's the word for theory, from which we get the word theory. He is seeing the idols, and he is beginning to come to some ideas and some conclusions about what's happening here. And what happens is that when he begins to see the idols and he begins to see more deeply into what the idols are doing to the humans, he becomes indignant that, that humans are in the arms of idols who are enslaving them and killing them rather than in the arms of God who gives them abundant life and life eternal. You know, the, the opposite of, of love is, is not hate. It's indifference. I mean, you can go in and you can see the idols, but if you're indifferent, I mean, you don't really have a heart full of love, but it's more indifferent about the people that are with those idols, then you're not going to really care. You're not really going to do anything. You're not going to engage. But it's because you're not seeing underneath everything or behind the curtain what's going on because of the idolatry. And Paul sees this is a city that has been captured by, by idols. People's hearts have been taken by idols and, in, and instead of liberating them, is enslaving them. And that's true when, when you love somebody, right? When you love someone, there are times you are going to feel anger at the things and the circumstances that hurt them. Have you ever wondered why, you know, you're a parent and you just love those kids more than life? I mean, you know without a shadow of a doubt that you would die for those kids. And yet, one of the things that happens when they hurt themselves, they come in bleeding, one of the things that parents sometimes experience is anger. And it's not anger because of what, you know, the, the, at the kid. It's anger at what happened to the kid, the, 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 the hurting and the injuring of that person. And that's what it is that Paul, when, when, when Paul is walking through the marketplace, he's being overcome by the sense that here is a culture, here is a society, and it's not just this, this nebulous, uh, just a culture, but it's human beings that are being overrun. Their hearts and their souls and their minds and their bodies are being overrun by idols. And that's why the message gets spoken. A minute ago, I, I mentioned this idea of theory in light of what Paul was seeing in the idols of Athens. These, these theories are just the ideas about how things are working out and about what the possible outcomes can be. And Paul sees it with the idols. And he sees that people think that these idols are going to save them or help them to make sense of the world or at least to be a comfort to them in suffering. And in the end, he knows without a shadow of a doubt, they won't. The idols will not give them the life that they desire and the life that they need. And Paul knows only the gospel talking about Jesus. And what it is that Jesus accomplishes, only that will do that. And so Paul makes him do business with the gospel. 
He, he, in his sermon, there's really nothing explained about the benefits of the resurrection, even though you and I both know, as the receiver of those benefits, that there's a ton of great, life-changing things that happen because of the resurrection of Jesus. But he does not give them the benefits. He makes them do business with the fact of the resurrection. I believe there's a resurrection. It was witnessed. There is a resurrection. The proof of it is this. Now do business with that. In essence, he's asking them, if the resurrection is true, and it is, then everything changes. Beginning with what you believe about the world and what you believe about God and what you believe God thinks about you. If the resurrection is true and it was witnessed by all these people, then the world is different because the unknown God that's out there someplace that you think you might have missed, that's the one I'm talking about. The, and, and the resurrection just makes the gospel another kind of animal. It's not like all of these other religions and philosophies in the world. If the resurrection is true and the gospel enters your life, if the gospel is true, there is now going to be a whole different way of doing life. And that's the connection. That's the relationship between the Christian faith and the, and the, the secular culture around us. Now, we're, you know, we're going to talk some more about the specifics of the message in coming weeks as we continue the study of Acts. But, you know, it really does not matter where you go in the world. The gospel, if it's in your heart and it's transformed your life, then the gospel goes wherever you go. And, and, and not only that, there comes a point where you understand, because you experience it, that there is in the faith this emotional response that when you drive by human suffering or you see people that are being led down a false road or you see people that are suffering because of the things that they believe that you know to be false, there's an emotional response to that because you know without a shadow of a doubt that the gospel being the truth being the truth that God has given us in Christ Jesus himself. The gospel is not a philosophy. It's, it's, it is an historic fact. The, the resurrection is a thing that you would read about on the front page of the paper. It is in, it's history. And if it's true, and it is, then everything changes, including your emotional life. And not only that, you're ready to speak it. I'm not saying it's easy. But you realize that whenever you're in the presence of people, of folk, that there's going to be an opportunity for you to be able to talk about the Messiah in such a beautiful way because of how it's made you a beautiful person and a loving person and a gracious person and a person that looks like the human being that God always intended for you to be, that that's going to raise questions. Or even if people just find out that you're Christian and they don't really know anything about you, they're going to have questions like the lady did on Friday. And you know what? That's a God moment. That's an intersection of someone who is seeking and someone who has been blessed with the truth of the gospel. And that's that relationship. We, we're, we're not at war. You know what we are? We're in love with people. We're in love with people the way that God loves people. And before we were ever, ever, ever cognizant of, of any of that, God loved us, John says. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. And when we go into our culture, we go as representatives of the Christ. 
we, we, we talk about the, the beauty of, of the gospel as well as blessing people's lives. So that in San Antonio, as it was in all of those cities and villages north of, of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8, there's joy in that city because of the church. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now, and maybe there's some ways that we can minister to you this morning. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. Maybe it's you want to discover what the gospel is all about. These shepherds would love to talk to you about it. Maybe there's some prayer requests, whatever it is. Come down to the front as we stand and sing this song together. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Very deep, staying within, seeking to rise no more. But the master of the Before, uh, before we're dismissed, uh, we're going to sing one more song after this, and then um, uh, we'll be led in a closing prayer. Uh, a couple of prayer requests have come forward, though, this morning. Uh, first is for the, uh, the Terry family who live in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, Fred Terry who was a uh, personal friend of mine, and his wife was my secretary uh, while we were up in Kansas uh, 16 years ago. Uh, was playing racquetball this last, uh, this last Wednesday and collapsed. Um, and, and died there on the court, leaving uh, a wife and, uh, and two kiddos. And so we want to, uh, to remember the Terry family in our prayers. Uh, the Flores family would like for us to remember Brian Flores. Please pray for Brian. He has had the flu since Monday. Catherine Ranslaven would like for us to pray that she be able to discern what God's will is for her life. Uh, John Folks uh, would like for us to remember the family of LaDonna Roberts, as we have been praying over the last couple of weeks for uh, Mrs. Roberts, this is Moivana's sister, uh, we are saddened to hear that LaDonna passed away last night. Please pray for the family of LaDonna Roberts, John asks. Uh, Carol Hollins and family ask for us to remember Don Hollins, her husband, in our prayers and our good brother. Uh, the kidney cancer is an issue again. There is a marble-sized tumor in the right kidney going to find out Wednesday what the procedure is going to, uh, to be and when it will be scheduled to begin. Uh, we would appreciate your prayers because we know that God listens and prayer works. The Moors for their son Joshua 
Josh has uh, been home the last couple of months while he crossed trains. However, our time having him home is coming to an end. Please pray for safe travels and for continued success as he leaves for his next training assignment in Holloman Air Force Base this next Sunday. The Holmes family for Tommy Holmes, that he will get better. Caleb Baptiste for Mariah Baptiste. She's been missing, and it's been over 21 days. The Beckham family for, uh, for Merced Miranda. She has been diagnosed with gout and is now on a heart monitor. And for Rosalinda Thompson, found a mass on her breast and praying now that it is not cancer. Renee Roden for a cousin, Cheryl Quarles. My cousin is a 17-year-old cancer breast survivor who has recently gone through a long process of heart issues and surgeries. Last week, the doctors found a lump on her right breast, and she will be having surgery on Wednesday to prevent the spread. She told me yesterday she is tired. Her body has gone through a lot, but ultimately God doesn't want her to give up. Please pray that her spirit remains lifted and the doctors and all involved will be successful in treating her. Uh, also have a prayer request from the, uh, the Reese family. This next uh, Thursday night, their little daughter is going to be uh, in uh, the rodeo with, uh, with the mutton busting. And if you've ever seen that, you know that Things happen. <laughs> I mean, it's like a pillow running over you, but it's <laughs> I stole that line from Daryl Hutchinson, or maybe it was John Skipworth, but uh, they, they would pray that uh, little Ivy be safe during that time. Uh, before we sing our, uh, our next song, um, Daryl has something he would like to share with the congregation. In January, we made an announcement that we would be organizing weekly small groups to encourage biblical fellowship and spiritual growth. We have been encouraged and are excited about the amount of positive feedback we have received and interest we have received concerning this ministry. A lot has happened since then. Several informational meetings uh, for interested uh, group leaders were held, and most of the leader spots uh, have been placed. Training for the leaders is scheduled for Sunday, February